When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of September 29th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about ESPN's decision to suspend Bill Simmons after the sports guy called NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell a liar on his podcast. We'll also be joined by dermatologist, Granlin writer, and Royals fan, Ranny Gizerli, to talk about Kansas City's return to the baseball playoffs after 29 long years. Our colleague Ben Mathis Lilly will be here to talk about Michigan football and what happens when a college fan base rebels against a coach and an athletic director. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus, we'll talk about the awkward high fives, the captain blaming, and the Euro dominance at Golf's Ryder Cup. Joining me in Washington, D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered, and a known liar. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Uh, and with us in New York is Mike Pesca, huge liar, the host Biggest. of the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. What are you going to lie about uh, to us today, Mike? That I know how to pronounce huge. <laughs> that is a that is an enormous lie, gigantic lie, it's fucking bullshit. It is fucking to bullshit. Quote Bill Simmons. We have a live show coming up where we will curse liar. We will lie. I'm not. I did lie last week when I said that Galapagos was in Williamsburg. I've been informed that they moved like seven years ago. And I think yeah. it was you, actually, Mike, who told me it was in Williamsburg at one point. Well, I don't know. I don't know. It's in Dumbo. When I was there, Please. it was Williamsburg. 
please. Maybe come it's to Williamsburg Dumbo. that's moved. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Come to Dumbo. There will be no confusion. It's October 8th. There's still tickets available. We'd love to see you there. The live shows are always good in my, yep. my view. I'm not, I am not a liar. What is that uh, riddle about the person who two people tell a lie and one Brothers and tells sisters, I have none, but this man's fun. <laughs> no, I don't know. Slate.com slash hangupsuperweek is the URL. That's the truth as well. Uh, you can get a discount on your ticket if you're a Slate Plus member, and it's in Dumbo. We'd love to see you there. All right. And before we proceed with the rest of the show, a warning that this will be a free-flowing segment that occasionally touches on mature subjects. On his podcast last week, ESPN's Bill Simmons said this about Roger Goodell. I just think not enough is being made out of the fact that they knew about the tape and they knew it was on it. Goodell, if he didn't know what was on that tape, he's a liar. I'm just saying it. He is lying. I think that dude is lying. If you put him up on a lie detector test, that guy would fail. And, and it, for it, all these people to pretend they didn't know is, is such f-ing bullshit. It really is. It's such f-ing bullshit. And for him to go in that press conference and yeah. pretend otherwise, I was so insulted. He also said this in the general direction of his bosses. I really hope somebody calls me or emails me and says I'm in trouble for anything I say about no, Roger I don't, Goodell. I think it's if, pretty if one person says that to me, I'm going public. You leave me alone. We may the commissioner's have to a liar, and I get to talk about that on my podcast. Thank there you. There you go. We'll bleep the F and the BS, maybe, but the otherwise... We'll bleep that. Yeah, we can bleep that. Yeah. Please, call me and say I'm in trouble. I dare you. <laughs> you are fired up. A few days later, Simmons, who's the editor-in-chief of the ESPN-owned website Grantland, as well as the executive producer of the 30 for 30 documentary series and an on-air basketball commentator, was suspended by ESPN with the network saying in a statement that every employee must be accountable to ESPN and those engaged in our editorial operations must also operate within ESPN's journalistic standards. We have worked hard to ensure that our recent NFL coverage has met that criteria. Bill Simmons did not meet those obligations in a recent podcast. and, And as a result, we have suspended him for three weeks. All right. For one thing, this was the biggest news that had to do with a podcast since my afterball a few weeks ago about the cornhole arcade game that curses at you. Um, second, this suspension has raised a lot of bigger issues about Simmons's relationship with ESPN, ESPN's relationship with the NFL, when it's appropriate to call someone a liar, and how an employer should react to an employee who says, I dare you. Uh, so Mike Pesca, I dare you to talk about all of this right now. Bill Simmons should not have been suspended. Uh, I would think that very few other legitimate uh, journalistic organizations would have suspended a person for such comments if, as is the case with ESPN, they have a set of podcasts and those podcasts have rules like be provocative and you could swear, but we'll bleep it out afterwards. That was, by the way, side note, annoying side note. Well, if I unleashed a stream of profanity, you're allowed to unleash a stream of profanity on podcasts. Profanity makes everyone a little too crazy in evaluating if people should be suspended. So you got to think that the only reason, the, the biggest reasons he was suspended was insubordination and who he chose to, who he chose to denigrate. And if, uh, I don't know, if we could cast about for other comparisons, but let's just realize that ESPN is sort of a three-tiered beast. Their journalism, their broadcast partners of the NFL, and their opinion, like wacky, over-the-top opinion guys. And so I guess Simmons lost 
ESPN, two of those three as ESPN would define its best practices. But I think in real life, way too harsh a punishment for not that terrible an offense. I think you're right, Mike. I think he wouldn't have been suspended by other news media organizations. I think he would have been fired. Bill Simmons still wants to be the wacky sports guy with the crazy Boston opinions, while also (laughs) being the editor of a prominent online magazine, while also being the producer of a major documentary film series, and while also being a network television commentator on broadcasts that ESPN pays a lot of money to show the National Basketball Association. And while also wanting to be and being one of the most important, if not the most important voices in online sports journalism. I think the question that ESPN is raising is, can that voice be someone who says that the NFL commissioner is a liar? Not that he dissembled, not that he looked stupid, not that he, you know, not that we don't know what he knew and when he knew it, but that he was a liar and that his continued employment is fucking bullshit. I think there are standards. And I think if you want to be big boy power broker at a multi-billion dollar company, there are some standards. And I think it's a false distinction that they're making that, hey, the podcasts are different. You can curse over there. It's Bill Simmons and his personality is and his and his responsibility to this company is what it is. And it's a collective of all the things that he does now. Robert Lipsite, ombudsman for ESPN, uh, wrote the following. Simmons, John Skipper believes, John Skipper being essentially Simmons' boss, is transitioning into an important influence and mentor at Grantland and needs to leave his well-worn punkishness behind, which is kind of what you were saying as well. But the part that doesn't make sense is that Simmons's persona is the entire reason that he has all of the responsibilities that he has. It's the entire reason why he's popular. And the transaction that's been going on here ever since Simmons was brought into the fold by ESPN in 2001 is that Bill Simmons gets the platform. He gets to be on TV, you know, talking about the NBA because ESPN has that contract. He couldn't do that with another media organization. Um, and he gets all the, you know, the fire hose that ESPN brings to uh, readers to his column. And what ESPN gets is the cred. They get somebody who is iconoclastic. ESPN, for all of its merits, is not cool. It's not like revolutionary anymore, as it might have been in the late 70s when it started. And so they benefit each other in that way. And so you can't say that, you know, Simmons is now some mature guy and he needs to like, you know, act like a senior executive because that's not who he is. And he has no value to ESPN if he's that person. I mean, I think he enjoys having the sinecure of the, you know, Grantland position of being the guy who like has his name and the opening credits of the 30 for 30 documentaries. But, you know, whatever you may think about it, Stefan Fatsis, I think he believes that his integrity is also important and that he wouldn't be true to himself if he didn't call Roger Goodell a liar and didn't say that it was fucking bullshit otherwise. So, Um, I mean, so are there no limits for Bill Simmons because he has personality and because he's a kind of classic and because that's his value to ESPN? I totally agree that that's his value to ESPN. But there are limits, I think. I think there have to be boundaries in terms of what makes sense and what is, you know, necessary. Bill Simmons didn't need to call Roger Goodell a fucking liar. I'm sorry, just a liar. 
in order to make the exact same point. And but whether you... this has to do with the interconnectedness of ESPN's business and its journalism or not, there's there, you know there's a point where logic and that wasn't a very good podcast. I mean, it just wasn't good commentary. It was churlish and childish and insubstantial. Any idiot, and maybe this is the point of Simmons that you're trying to make, but anybody can say Roger Goodell's a liar. Okay, I think, is there a point? Yeah, that point might have to do when you're criticizing someone whose ESPN's reporting hasn't shown, if not demonstrated, strongly suggested, is in fact a liar. And laced within those comments were things like, I think he's a liar if he strapped himself up to a lie detector test. So yeah, he did at one point say he's a liar, which is a defensible statement. And then he also expressed, you know, I think he's a liar. So that would satisfy the libel lawyers. You went through this whole thing about what Bill Simmons wants to be. Bill Simmons wants to be Grantland and Bill Simmons wants to be on the NBA broadcast. ESPN wants him to be that too. And I think Josh was making this point. I just said it was a fact that that's what he is now. But you're saying you seem to be saying that if he wants to be those things, he can't also be an iconoclast, and that's not true. And that's exactly what ESPN wants him to be. And then you also said that you think it's a false distinction between podcast and print. That's not. I live it every day. We live it every day. The things we say on this podcast, sometimes in print, we'd phrase it a different way or say a different thing. And if there are gross distortions of uh, truth, we'll go back and you know not put it out on the podcast. But it's a different medium, and the reason that the podcasting works as a medium, the reason that radio is a different medium from writing is because there's a little bit more of a looseness to it. You also say that that podcast wasn't good radio. Like for what it is, which is Cousin Sal and Bill picking the point spreads of a game, but that moment where he just goes off on Roger Goodell was extremely compelling radio, podcast radio. I think the person that he criticized was a billion dollar partner with his bosses and he tweaked his boss's noses. And if you take away either of those things, he wouldn't, uh, some similar person wouldn't have been fired. And also the things that he said, forget the language and the one sentence where he says he's a liar, if he had put the words that all evidence indicates that Roger Goodell's a liar, but you know, it's a podcast. Him saying Roger Goodell's a liar, that's kind of what I want from podcast hosts. I'd rather have that than, you know, always the careful company line all the time. Well, Lipsite says in his column that he supports the suspension. But, you know, Robert Lipsite was an iconoclastic Times columnist in the 70s who, you know, I don't know if the Lipsite of the 70s would have agreed with the idea that the Bill Simmons of the 2010s should have been suspended. But Simmons will be forever pushing up against his bosses and trying to push the line because that is the entire value that he has. If it feels like to his readers and listeners that he's been co-opted by the NFL and that he's been co-opted by ESPN, that he's now this like more tempered version of himself, then why would anyone want to listen to him or read him? And that's why there's always going to be this tension because like Mike said, ESPN wants that from him too, up to a point. And then there's this kind of internal right, to politics point. about, oh, well, some you know person in the Bristol cafeteria is going to be upset because Bill gets to say that, but I don't get to say it, which I think is bullshit because he got Has where he is. Right to he got where he is on merit. Yes. He got where he is on merit and got to his position 
on merit by being this particular way. And to now say that he has to play by the same rules, that's not what ESPN has said, Tim, for the last 13 years. They've explicitly said and implicitly, you can play by your own rules. And, you know, that's what they want from him. Well, absolutely. And I don't disagree with any of that. Maybe what the problem is here is that he needs what the rest of us have, which is an editor or a producer to protect him (laughs) against completely wayward, this is just dumb and it's going to get you in huge amounts of trouble and it is not worth it. Let's find a way to rephrase that moments. But you assume that he's even upset to have been suspended. No, I, I think that it, I think that it burnishes his credentials and he would reject an editor. And if the editor would say, don't say he's a liar, don't say this is fucking bullshit. He'd say, I want to say that. And oh, that's we have ample evidence, that, evidence rejects that he rejects ed- editors. Yeah. yeah. In the ESPN oral history, there's a lot of Simmons talking shit about his bosses and his bosses talking shit about him. Jay Lovinger, longtime editor at ESPN, says you would send an edit back to Bill. He would say stead everything, which in journalism means don't change anything. And and if you complain, he would say, all right, I'll just talk to John Skipper or John Walsh. And that is naturally going to breed contempt or, you know, anger from people and upper management, the idea that this guy won't listen to anyone. And his decision not to listen to anyone has generally been validated by the public and by his bosses. But I think maybe we're getting towards some sort of agreement, agreement someplace in the middle here. When you behave that way, You're you have to, it. you are asking for it. And I think, as Mike said, you mean he's when probably he not asking, that... When he explicitly asked for <laughs> when it, he explicitly asked for it, he was asking for it. Yeah. And he's probably not that upset because if you amortize the suspension over 13 years of unbelievable success and acclaim, it's just like well, a tiny tiny, you know, dot that will only make him more popular and more famous. And maybe what we should be talking about is how stupid it is to suspend him. I mean, is that the appropriate punishment here? Suspending him from his job as the editor of this major website? You want to make him collect trash on the highway? I mean, what what are you going to have him do? I don't know. Have him apologize. (laughs) Have him have a public conversation about it. Have him write a column about how aggrieved he feels. I don't know. It seems like (laughs) having him apologize. Suspension seems kind of silly to me. I mean, what is a public conversation will happen? Well, the public conversation has happened and it would have happened anyway. The suspension part just seems kind of silly to me. It's sort of, especially given what he was talking about and writing about. You know, we're writing about and talking about the NFL's inability to sort of handle suspensions in any sort of reasonable or sensible way. And ESPN sort of looks like the NFL. Well, we'll just suspend him here. Suspension seems to be the answer to any indiscretion at this company. And I don't think that's the case at other media organizations. Well, Stephen A. Smith suspended for a week for essentially saying on his stupid TV show that Janae Rice provoked her own beating. And so Simmons now suspended for three weeks. I mean, the question is for ESPN, you know, at least Mike and I agree that suspension and you seem to agree now that suspension wasn't the right you know, thing to do. But their options here are make it look like they're in the pocket of the NFL or allow this guy to say, I dare you to suspend me and not do anything, which probably would not play well in the Bristol cafeteria. So I guess they're playing the internal politics game and the like Bill Simmons, you can't do say or do whatever you want game. And that's more important to them than making it seem to outsiders like, you know, Roger Goodell can 
lift a finger and say, you know, you can't you can't say that about us. Well, let's think about what what's the Mike, what's the bigger interest for ESPN here that Simmons walks? And is that a concern that he goes and starts the Bill Simmons network? Is that a fear? And if that's really a fear, then is suspending him just pushing him out the door? Or are these two parties at the point where they just go through this dance every three or four years and it, you know, the public talks about yeah, it a I mean, lot they, and then we move on? They went through this dance in 2008, certainly. I have no idea how Grantland is doing. I mean, if it's a huge moneymaker, that would change things. You know, the NFL is a huge moneymaker, so that's why they kowtow to the NFL. I suspect that Grantland, I'm not going to compare it to the NFL. I, I, I really have no idea, but I haven't seen, you know, spot, like tons of positive stories about how great Grantland is. But maybe that's because, you know, ESPN doesn't want to tout it. It's probably also a little hard to figure out. Uh, to break out metrics just on that part of the site alone. Well, I think his value to the company is a little bit more ineffable. I don't. Know. I mean, I think he does add this kind of sense that it's not just a bunch of corporate drones there. And so it is hard to tell at this point. Like, his next podcast is going to be interesting. His next column is going to be interesting. So that'll be good for Grantland's uh, numbers, for sure. Yeah, I mean, for three weeks, I don't know what he and Cousin Sal are going to predict the spreads will be. <laughs> What about I mean, me? <laughs> yeah, we're we're going to want to know retroactively what their they guesses were for the yeah. spreads in week four. Could they we're going to want to put that. it in a time capsule. <laughs> All right, a quick word about our membership program, Slate Plus. You can sign up for five dollars a month at slate.com/hangupplus. You can get ad-free versions of your favorite Slate podcasts and also podcast extras. There are also members-only discussions with Slate staffers. We had one recently. They got 165 comments over a couple of days about whether Slate is too liberal if you'd like to participate in such conversations. Stefan is uh, smirking. Stefan, you could participate in that conversation. If you'd like to participate or get those podcast extras, you can become a member at slate.com slash hangup plus. All right, Mike Pesca had to step away for this segment, but Stefan and I are still here, and we're joined by a special guest who we'll get to in one moment. But uh, let me begin by saying that for the first time since 1993, it's time for a celebration both the Red Sox and the Yankees are out of the baseball playoffs. It's not a celebration. <laughs> screw yourself. I will, I will screw myself, but I will do it in a celebratory manner. One team that is there, the Kansas City Royals, who haven't made it to the postseason since winning the World Series in 1985 with Dan Quisenberry, Brett Saberhagen, George Brett, and Buddy Biancalana in tow. Kansas City will host Oakland in the one-game wildcard playoff on Tuesday night. And we're joined now by a man who's been waiting a very long time for there to be a postseason game since in Kansas City. Since 1985. It's 1985, exactly. Randy Gisarli is a dermatologist by day, perhaps a dermatologist by night if someone has a suspicious mole in the evening. He also writes about baseball for Grantland, and he's joining us by phone from Chicago. Randy, how are you? I am well. How are you guys? We're good. You you better be happy. It's been a long I, time. I am happy, and it has been a very <laughs> long time, my friend. I, you know, you'd be forgiven if you'd lost the capacity for joy over the last three decades. <laughs> But let's and let's take a moment if we can if it's not too difficult for you to marinate in the sadness of the last 29 years. Um it was the longest streak of missing the playoffs in the four major professional sports by 8 years. And I'll say at the end of the segment who the longest streak holders are now if you want to think about it and play along. Um but Kansas City accrued that streak on merit or I guess on the opposite of merit. They weren't particularly close to making the playoffs in any season. Um, and you and Rob Nyer blogged about the franchise for years. You wrote with a tone 
that alternated between bemusement, disgust, and exasperation. Do you recall a particular moment when you felt completely broken? Like, what was the nadir when you were on the verge of quitting this pathetic franchise? Uh, There are so many to choose from. Um, I think the absolute low moment would be there was a stretch there in the 2000s. They lost 100 games three years in a row, and in the midst of that, they had a 19-game losing streak, I think the longest in baseball in the last 25 years. And the I believe it was the 11th game in that losing streak, the Royals led 7-2 to going into the ninth inning against the Cleveland Indians. The Indians rallied. They had the tying runs on base. Two were out, and a routine fly ball was hit to left field, and a, a otherwise unmemorable player like so many people who play for the Royals named Chip Ombres dropped a routine just flat out dropped a routine fly ball. He was the Tom Pachorik of the of the aughts, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Just dropped the ball, the game tied, the Indians scored another six runs in the inning. They scored eleven runs in the ninth. <laughs> This is a very specific memory. Yeah, well, it is a very, but it's a very, it's a moment that just epitomized, you know, the 29 years is just the, the flat out patheticness that the franchise was for so long. I mean, you make the point of, you know, they haven't made it in 29 years, they haven't come close. They haven't come anywhere close to a playoff <laughs> spot in 29 years. I mean, they have not been mathematically alive going into the final weekend of the season until this year. You know, I got, I got to also say, Ronnie, that. Even before that, I mean, yes, you won the World Series in 1985, but those years of late 70s and early 80s when the Yankees were their daddies could not have been terribly, terribly pleasant either. I mean, those someone memories, you know. Someone seems to have forgotten 1980, my friend. Oh, 1980, sure, right, whatever. Some, someone seems to have forgotten George Brett going triple upper deck against Goose Gossage. I, I kind of, it just, it's all coming back to me now. I, yes, was, remembering, I was remembering the Pine Tar game good. and Chris Chambliss. Yes, the Pine Tar game, which we won. I, Freddie Patek crying in the dug. Yeah, but what do you remember from that game? You remember the Pine Tar episode. It wasn't as if it was all thrills and chills. I mean, yes, the fact that the Royals were a perennial contender was fantastic for Kansas City fans, but there was a sense of that you were still the cuddly Midwesterners who couldn't quite get over the hump until they got over the hump. Are, is this a family-friendly podcast? Am I allowed to curse Yeah, you, you can now? curse. Go ahead. <laughs> but you forget, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a polite Midwesterner, so I won't do that. <laughs> I will just say that uh, you are sadly mistaken. If you if you think that we, we were ever the Yankees bitches, we... We took our lumps for a couple of years, and then we, we he who laughs last laughs best. And the last time the Yankees and the Royals met in the playoffs, the Royals swept their asses and sent you guys home crying to mama. So we'll just leave it at that. Short season. I think we, I think we will leave it at that. But the thing that I find interesting about this Royals team is that I, I used to read you and Rob Nyer, and there's something universal about the pain of you know this team and and how bad it was and a lot of what you guys chronicled was in the age of enlightenment in baseball how unenlightened this franchise was and the poor decisions by upper management by on-field management and so my question is did the royals get smarter or was this year a fluke it's a good question and i mean you're absolutely right that what made being a royals fan so frustrating for so long was heightened by the fact that Rob and I were both you know, members of the analytic community 
you know, from, from I wouldn't say it's infancy, for, but from bef- well before it was embraced by anyone in baseball. And to see sabermetrics and, and statistical analysis embraced by teams like the A's, like the Red Sox, like the Tampa Bay Rays, with great success, and knowing that our favorite team in the world was probably more behind the curve than any other team in the majors, and not coincidentally was the worst team in baseball for you know, a decades-long stretch. And a small market team that really couldn't afford to be stupid. Exactly. I mean, where, you know, other small market teams adapted out of necessity. I mean, if there's one advantage to being a small market team is that you had to think outside the box. The A's did that. The Rays did that with great success. The Royals refused to think outside the box. They tried to beat teams with three times their payroll with the exact same strategy as the other teams, and it worked as well as you would imagine. And the Royals managed to like tape themselves inside the box somehow. <laughs> I mean, it was it was so aggravating as a fan of the team, and yet on some level, it was it was almost vindicating as someone who be, you know who who believed that there was a better way of doing things, and that. The Royals were getting what they deserved for ignoring it. So for so long, yes, they were behind the curve. And I still think that this is an organization that is more resistant to analysis than, than many other teams. I mean, what makes this year so bizarre is that they have not adapted their offense to the modern era. They are dead last in the majors in walks drawn. They've never, one of the hallmarks of the franchise, we talk about them not embracing analytics, is they've never valued on base percentage. They have finished below average in walks drawn in, I believe the stretch now is 33 of the last 34 years. Let, let me, let me run down walks. some of the statistics for you because I looked them up last night as you did a couple months ago when you wrote about it for Grantland. Fewest home runs by an American League team since 1992 this year, mm-hmm. 95 home runs. Run differential was plus 27, which is terrible. They finished 89 and 73. Their Pythagorean standings had them five games worse. And then when you consider second and third order win percentage in that statistic, it's like another five games worse. They don't strike out great, the fewest Ks in the majors by a mile, but they don't walk at all, as you said. Fourth worst walk rate since 1969 when the strike zone was redefined 16th in OBP this year and you wrote a couple months ago the Royals philosophy is decidedly retro more suited for baseball in 1914 than 2014 put the ball in play run fast play good defense but this is not supposed to win this is not supposed to get you into the playoffs it's not but if you do it perfect like there's no margin for error if this is the way you put together a team like, if you don't walk and you don't hit on runs like the Royals do, then you have to do everything else well. And if there's one area where I would say, okay, maybe they're not completely behind the times, it is that they have put together a team that does everything else well. You mentioned last in strikeouts. They're not just last in strikeouts. They've struck out, I believe, 120 times fewer than every other team in baseball. That's a pretty enormous advantage, and that's why they finished second in the American League in batting average. Now, batting average isn't as valuable as getting on base or slugging, but it is... It is something. It is a foundation. They led the American League in stolen bases, and they had an excellent, I believe they may have led the league in stolen base percentage as well. And their defense was crazy, like 70 runs above average. Right. Their defense is fantastic. And their bullpen, they had three relievers who pitched 60 or more innings with an ERA of under 1.5. That is the first team in Major League history. Because I can say that, and that's a big reason why they. You talk about their Pythagorean record being 84 and, and 78, and they exceeded that by five games. Generally speaking, when that happens, luck is a big component. But the one area where a team can kind of overachieve based on on that is with a really good bullpen, because then you you can deploy those guys when you're you know in close games late, 
and you're going to win more than your share of, of one- and two-run games. So some of what the Royals have done is luck. You're right. I mean, the, the, their second- and third-order wins are lower because they've been somewhat fortunate hitting with runners in scoring position. Their pitchers have been somewhat fortunate as well. But some of it is by design. Some of it is, like I said, a great bullpen. Some of it is having a team that puts the ball in play and then is fast enough that when the opposition doesn't field it perfectly, is able to turn that into something. And they've won a lot of games this year where you just scratch your head and say, how did they win that game? Because the other team made a a terrible defensive play. Well, the more more balls you put in play, the more likely the opposition is going to make an error or do something dumb. You're not going to see that happen very often on a strikeout, but a ground ball may, may be bobbled by the opposition. So that has been some of their success. I still think the team is behind uh, the curve when it comes to analytics, but the one area where I think they may be quietly ahead of the curve is the defense, evaluating defense, because they have, this is the second year in a row they've had one of the best defenses in baseball. And to me, that is, that is the unsung you know, hero of this, uh, of this roster, is that they have made an, an okay rotation look very good because pretty much everybody on the field, especially their outfielders, can absolutely go get the ball. So in Grantland, uh, you wrote a column called A Royal Blender. And you can uh, tell us what that Royal Blender was and also let us know, do you still think it was a blender? The answer to your second question, I think the best way to, to answer that is to ask me on Wednesday because the blunder of which you speak was the decision to trade Will Myers, minor league player of the year, uh, according to Baseball America, as well as Jake Odorizzi, who was a, and also a top prospect, two other guys, to Tampa Bay two years ago for James Shields and Wade Davis. And I was certainly not alone within not just the analytic community, but even you know among baseball teams in thinking the Royals overpaid for a, a very good starting pitcher in Shields, but not an ace, and a guy who's going to be a free agent in two years. And um, this know, trade was like an inflection point for the team, a decision that said, we're going to stop hoarding young talent and we're going right. to win now. And the kind of broader argument about it was that this was just a really stupid way to think about building a team, that you have all of this young talent and you're just going to throw away a huge chunk of it for a pitcher who's only under contract for two more years, who's getting older, who doesn't and he's not like Felix Hernandez or something. Someone else. He's not like Felix Hernandez or something. And so this exactly. was this was seen as just philosophically not something that was very smart. Yeah, and, and philosophically I hated it almost as much as analytically in the sense that for years they the, the franchise had been preaching patience, had been had been building the, this incredible farm system that had gotten rave reviews. And then suddenly they were throwing away a huge chunk of it for short-term game. It just felt like it was a move made almost out of desperation that you, that you are so desperate to win in the here and now that you are going to throw away the chance at having you know, an, an all-star caliber player on the cheap for six or seven years. And you know, last year the Royals were better. They won 86 games last year, but they still didn't make the playoffs. Will Myers was the rookie of the year in Tampa Bay. I certainly had no reason to change my opinion of the trade at the end of the first season, which meant that really the only thing that could resuscitate the deal from the world's perspective was that they go to the playoffs this year and they do it because of James Shields and Wade Davis being on the team. And lo and behold, that's exactly what's happened. You know, and I say I want to wait till Wednesday because it's not a full playoff spot. We're talking about one game, and as while as historic as this is for the franchise, if you lose that game on Tuesday – 
with James Shields on the mound. I mean, this is the thing. He's, they've set up the rotation, the guy that they mortgaged their farm system for. They did so precisely so he would be the guy they would have on the mound in a must-win game like they're going to play. It would be way game. better of a storyline if he faced Will Myers and the Rays in the, <laughs> in the bottom of the ninth. It would, except it would probably kill me. <laughs> like, literally, I, one way or the other, I would have a heart attack and die during that game. So well, this, this does raise the question of what the, the goal of a franchise should be. Is it just to win? Is it to win some and energize the organization, change the culture, let fans know that you're willing to put a better product on the field and take risks to do it? You know, if Shields loses on Tuesday night and signs with somebody else, which is a distinct possibility given how much he's likely to demand or command on the free agent market. Or if they win the playoff game and lose in the ALDS, and then he walks, is it worth it if they win the ALDS and lose in the ALCS and sign him to a six-year, $150 million contract, (laughs) and he declines the way, I don't know, Justin Verlander has declined, is it worth it? I mean, how do you evaluate this as a fan? As a fan... There's a lot of thrill in having made it to the playoffs, even if it's just for one game. Right. And, and the other thing I'll say is, I, I think, you know, Will Myers had a tough year in Tampa, and I still don't think he's, you, you write him off by any means. I think he'll bounce back fine next year. Jake Odorizzi quietly had a very good rookie season, but the combination of Shields and then the quietly, you know, Wade Davis, who was such a failure as a starter last year, going to the bullpen and literally being the best reliever in baseball this year. I think you know, it's not just that they made the playoffs, but that you, you can't even make a case that they would have made the playoffs at all had they not made the trade. Like, part of what concerned me about the deal is I thought as soon as 2014, it was possible that the guys they traded would be as good as the guys they got back. That's not uh, the case. And that was not the case this year, and it wouldn't have mattered if they didn't make the playoffs. But you can point now and say the Royals made the playoffs in 2014, and they would not have made the playoffs had they not made the trade. Now, they, they may be in 2015 and beyond. There may be seasons where the opposite occurs, where they'll miss the playoffs by five games, and Will Myers has an all-star season, and Jacob Arizzi's pitching great, and, and uh, there'll be regrets then. But the fact that no matter what happens, there is, you, you have turned one early departure from the scene into a postseason berth. It's hard to, to describe the trade as a failure. It may not end up being a good trade if those guys really pan out. It, it, the, the Rays could still win the trade, but the Royals didn't make the deal, you know, they weren't thinking, we want to, quote, unquote, win the trade. Organizationally, it certainly sends a message to baseball that they're serious, people may right. want to play there now, and maybe fans will start showing up again because the Royals well, still drew under $2 when you million. make the playoffs, that, that sends another message, right, that you're sure. for real, and that, I think that's sending a message to the fans and, and the players. So from that perspective, I feel like the trade, it's hard to criticize the team for the trade now because this is exactly what they wanted. Maybe... What they wanted, you could question whether it was worth mortgaging the future for a playoff spot. But they made this trade to get to the playoffs and have James Shields on the mound. And that's exactly what they got. So the trade worked out exactly the way they wanted it to. Now, if Shields gets blasted on Tuesday and they lose that game, I think that it certainly plays a part in the narrative of the trade, is that the game they traded him for, he didn't shine through. And maybe that's unfair to evaluate a guy based on one game, but... This is the nature of the wild card game, is if you don't win your division, you're going to be in this completely unfair three-hour death match, and you know, the narrative of your season is going, to be, is going to hinge on that one game. On the other hand, if he goes out there and his pitches brilliantly and the Royals win, that will make it even more difficult for anyone to look back at this trade as a bad idea. If he comes through in the biggest game that the organization has played in 29 years, 
and takes them to the next round. At that point, once you're into the division series, you know, as Billy Bean says, you know, nobody shit works in the playoffs. So it's just a matter of getting there. And I think if they get through this game, as one of its biggest critics, I can't argue uh, at that point that it was a bad trade. Hey, Billy Bean wants to get to the next game, too, though. Yeah, yeah uh, this is true. All right, Randy. Well, you'll be at the game in Kansas City, and I'm sure you'll be thinking about it very analytically and coolly. <laughs> and if the Royals just do their best and it doesn't work out, then that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Um, I, I, guys, I, you know, I, I disagree with that. I have no earthly idea how I'm going to react because I've never been in this situation before. Well, we'll, uh, well, maybe we'll talk to you again and, and hear, uh, you know, about <laughs> all of the people that you murdered after the, uh, the, the, yeah, the heartbreak. It might be a very different show. You can just do a crime podcast. I'll be on that. All right. And um, before we say goodbye to you, I got to mention the playoff droughts. So it's now the Blue Jays, 21 years removed from mm-hmm. their last uh, – playoff game um and then you've got buffalo bills 1999 minnesota timberwolves 2004 and the edmonton oilers 2006 it's really easy to make the hockey playoffs apparently um so ranny maybe you should just become a fan of uh of a hockey team that's my suggestion thank you for joining us that would be that would be the coward's way out (laughs) (laughs) all right thank you for being with us and good luck on tuesday thanks guys all right mike pesca you're back for the segment confirm to the people that you're back I am back. Thank you. Uh, and let's move on from a fan base that's as pleased as punch to one that believes the turd to punch ratio in its bowl shaped stadium is now skewed in the turd word direction. I was kind of proud of turd word. Turd, turd word. word. <laughs> um, in his first season as Michigan head coach in 2011, Brady Hoke led the Wolverines to 11 wins, beat Ohio State, and won the Sugar Bowl. Since then, things have not gone so well for Brady. <laughs> Michigan went 8 and 5 in 2012, 7 and 6 in 2013 and lost 5 of its last 6 games last season. So far in 2014, Hoke's team is 2 and 3 with wins over Appalachian State and Miami of Ohio and blowout losses to Notre Dame, Utah, and Minnesota, the latter two at home. In Saturday's game against the Gophers, Hoke left quarterback Shane Morris on the field after he was clearly concussed leading ESPN's announcers Mike Patrick and Ed Cunningham to say this. And i got to tell you right now that number seven is still in this game is appalling. There he comes. It, it is appalling that he was left in on that play to throw the ball again as badly as he was hit by Cochran. And, and Cochran should have been ejected targeting and missed next week. But to have number seven in the game on a gimpy leg after a hit like that, that is terrible looking after a young player. We're now joined by an elected representative of the Michigan fan base, our colleague Ben Mathis Lilly, who runs the Slatest blog here at Slate.com. He grew up in Michigan. And uh, Mike, are you? Are his restraints, or is he tied down? Uh, I'll say a few things about Ben Mathis Lilly. He's wearing a Michigan shirt right now. <laughs> he didn't go to Michigan. His, his head, uh, his hair, he has streaks of those gold uh, things that they have in their hair. Oh, my God. It's not gold, Mike. It's, it's maize. Come maize, on. Maize, I know, I know. And I'm going to sing a little song to welcome him here and also to set up what his relationship to Michigan is. Here it, here it goes. Hell to Ben Mathis, Lily. His fandom is kind of silly. He was never a Wolverine, as unconscionable as that seems. Explain. I went to Harvard, and I still root for Michigan, which uh, I think makes me the most annoying fan in the world. I'm not a Yankees fan. I think that would complete the trifecta. Oh, I think that's right. I, well, at least you have some uh, self-awareness to go with your horribleness. Ben, there has been indignation about Brady Hoke for a long time among Michigan fans, which is inevitable when a big-time, fancy college football program loses games. But as an outsider, 
it looks to me like this concussion thing adds righteousness to the indignation. So I'm just wondering, is there any connection between why Michigan fans hated Brady Hoke before Saturday and why a lot of people think the guy should be fired for what happened in the Minnesota game? Yeah, and I think that that's what's really galling people about the concussion incident. Well, actually, I mean, one thing to point in here is that no one has actually checked Shane Morris for a concussion even now, as far as we know. There was a statement last night. There was a statement this morning from the Michigan Athletic Department. In neither of the statements did they mention actually performing the kind of concussion tests that we're used to seeing now on sidelines um, on Morris, despite the fact that he was hit very hard in the chest and, and it looked like in the chin. All the statements from Michigan are talking about his leg, which was also injured, which is another reason that people are upset that he was in the game. And the announcers hit on the gimpy leg more than they did on They said wobbly. They didn't say concussion. They said gimpy leg a lot more. But you guys were appalled, I think more than I was, by the decision to leave Shane Morrison. How could you not be appalled by it? I think you're the one who has to answer for that. Okay, because this is just like the Jay Cutler on the bench incident. The camera sees all, but I firmly believe that Brady Hoke did not see that one moment we saw where he stumbled. So the kid may have been gimpy and he may have, uh, his leg may have been limping, but you know, you keep them in. Uh, sometimes you do keep a player in when he's a little bit hurt. So I am willing to believe with everything a coach has to do that if he missed that moment that we saw, it makes him seem like we assume that he saw because we saw it, but that's not necessarily true. Although afterwards, he was very stupid in how he described his decision-making. Well, I think, I think that it's definitely possible that he was looking elsewhere on the field when, when Morris got hit. Uh, you know, he was looking at where the pass went. And, and yeah, I mean, the, the one single moment that he stumbled into his, his lineman was obviously very bad on TV. But I, th- I actually just rewatched it, and I think what happened afterward was that two of the players on the offense were gesturing toward the sideline also. And so I feel like if, even if you didn't see that one moment, you, you still, still should have noticed what was going on. You had one of the running backs uh, and a tight end kind of pointing at the sideline and saying, we need, we need someone else to get out. And with 100,000 people on staff, like a big team does, yeah, you should have someone looking yeah. at and someone telling the coach, coach, he, was, he wobbled. I'll give you that. So what is, what is the connection then to like the broader Brady Hoke Right. philosophy here. Is there like a line we can draw? Well, I think that's why people are so upset. You know, I, I think if this had happened to a coach who, who had just won 15 games in a row and was looking like he had a good handle on the situation, uh, I think people would be willing to forgive it and might, might be more inclined to take Mike's line of reasoning. But this plays in in a way that is very unfortunate for Hoke into the conception of, of why he's not a good coach, which is that he doesn't know what's going on specifically on offense. Uh, you know, the team gets a lot of delay of game penalties. They just don't look like they know what they're doing. The quarterbacks make a lot of turnovers. You know, they seem to have problems, uh, you know, reacting to a blitz. So there's a lot of these things that happen on the field, and, and Hoke seems kind of blithely unaware of them. And then to have something that's out, uh, more, much more serious than, than simply losing five yards on a delay of game happen, but speak to the exact same kind of lack of control, lack of awareness that he'd already been criticized for. And I think that's why people are using this as an opportunity to say he needs to go. Not necessarily that the incident itself is worthy of firing, but that this is not a surprise coming from, from Brady Hoke. No one is surprised that he did this. I'm going to quickly make a comment in response to Mike, which is that there's a coach, there's an assistant coach, there's a quarterback's coach, there are doctors, there are trainers, there were teammates. An offensive lineman basically had to catch him while he stumbled and nearly fell. He the ref, his the helmet, ref, the ref, the ref said, do you want to take a time out? And they're like, nah, we're this good. Is inexcusable on every level. If I were that kid's parents, I would be incensed and I would be in the athletic director's office today. 
I would be too, but I'm just saying that we assume that Hoke saw what we saw. I, I understand. This I forget Hoke. The camera. This is a this is a Michigan team. I know. I acknowledge that they have a thousand people on staff. Someone has to get to him and tell him the kid can't play. And I have to listen to that guy. For people who didn't see the game, they, we're talking about after he came out, he, they put him back in the game, and that's when the ref said, "Do you want a timeout?" Because they needed to take the quarterback, the replacement quarterback, out because his, his helmet, helmet came, came off. off. Right. Yeah. All right, but let's move beyond that and to sort of the culture of big programs, particularly, I think, big Midwestern, Big Ten-type programs. Uh, Brady Ho came in spouting a lot of tough guy mantra, you know, get rid of the Rich Rodriguez, crazy offense stuff. Let's get back to meat and potatoes, grind it out. We're our tough Michigan men. That this kind of philosophy persists today feels surprising, but in a lot of ways really isn't, is it, Ben? You know, if you have success doing what Michigan did for as long as they did, which was to have a really good offensive line and a really good defensive line, and, you know, I think they made they made a, a bowl game for, for more than 30 years. You know, they had one 500 season in the entire tenure of Bo Schembechler. I think that the casual fan is going to even kind of reasonably assume that that's the way to win a football game. And, and so it takes a lot to kind of knock that perception out of them. I think that's maybe it's what has happened now. I think the, the complete lack of success of Hoke, and in fact, the lack of success doing exactly what he said he was going to do, which was to run the ball down their throats, which, I mean, Michigan can't run the ball. And so I think people are figuring out that, you know, rhetoric, tough rhetoric is not necessarily the same as winning games. And so this maybe is the, is the kind of thing that's finally going to, uh, to push them out of that 1970s mindset. I think just like the expression, after a fat pope, a thin pope, Rich Rodriguez was this guy who came with this highly elaborate offense. He was the intricate watchmaker, and it didn't work. So even if the fan base was saying to itself, well, all right, we'll give this guy a try, it just felt really good. It felt like a return to old-fashioned values when Hoke came and when he was hired and he looks like Chris Christie and he's like a regular guy. And like you want to be able to win that way. I think that it's harder to win that way. Obviously, the spread offense is much better. But if you are to win that way, you have to operate with a Shem Beckler-like precision. So the combination of this antiquated philosophy and not having excellent execution that just is a uh, conflagration. There's no reason, though, do you think, Ben, that Michigan can have uh, a, an awesome wide-open offense? I mean, sure, they hadn't in the 70s, but the 70s were the 70s, and this is 2014. Right. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the truism that is always true is that if the team is winning, the fans are going to accept the philosophy, they're going to accept the personality of the coach, and, and you know, Rich, Rich Rodriguez's offense actually, actually was pretty good. I mean, there was really everything else was what was wrong with his program, and so I think that if you had had a defense that could allow less than 30 points a game, you would have had fans saying, well, maybe this is a good idea. You know, we have to catch up with the times. You know, yeah. we're Michigan. We're, I'm sure there's some other way they could have framed it to, to fit in with the Michigan-ness of it. Oh, you know, we're intelligent. We, we yeah. react to, to the world, you know. Our defense is still strong. Yeah. Whatever. There's a broader underlying problem here, too, and it's one that's, that's affecting other athletic departments, is that there is less interest among students. Michigan has tried to prop up this fiction of sellouts for however 30-plus years, however many in a row it is. Uh, they're struggling to sort of survive in a, in a marketing-driven college football economy. You know, they brought in the former, what is he, president of Domino's to be the athletic director. Yeah. Um, and there's been a lot of resentment toward how he has approached the revitalization of the, of the business side of, of the football program. That all is of a piece. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, I think that gets to something else that's actually extraordinary that happened on, on Saturday during the game. The student section chanted 
Fire Dave Brandon. That's the name of the, the athletic director. Now, I, I could have happened before, but I have never heard of a bunch of 20-year-old drunk kids chanting that an athletic director should be fired because of his marketing techniques. I mean, that just goes to show you the degree of alienation that has gone on there. But then another section of the fans broke out with a, but he has a large buyout in his contract. And the third said, well, furlough him indefinitely. It was very odd. That's right. It's the general manager fetishization of, uh, of college sports. Yeah, there, and actually, uh, uh, Stefan, the announced attendance figure was booed on Saturday. <laughs> Uh, they said, I think, 102,000, despite the fact that, that at least a quarter of the stadium was very spotty. And people booed because it is that consecutive games over 100,000 that is another kind of marketing, what looks to be this point of marketing fiction that Michigan is, is clinging to. So the interesting thing about big-time college sports as compared to pro sports is that, like, if you're a fan of whatever NFL team or baseball team, you can yell that you want to fire the manager, the coach, or whatever, and there's just some rich dude who doesn't have to listen to you if he doesn't want to. But in college sports, the rich uh, people are the boosters of the program, and they can actually control whether a coach or an athletic director is hired or fired. And so there is the sense that the rising swell of anger here is, you know, this is the kind of revolution that can and will succeed. And so how do you feel, you know, I've thought about this when, uh, you know, my team, my, my LSU Tigers, that when they aren't doing well, like, how do you feel about being part of this bloodlust, about <laughs> being part of the, you know, fire Brady Hoke um, revolution? Well, I, yeah, I've thought about that, too, because it is kind of the situation in which two dumb forces are, are, are colliding. <laughs> You know, one force is the dumbness of, of the, the coaching staff right now. And the other force is the kind of dumb thing where just whenever a team is doing bad, then you just say fire the coach, you know. And I think that there's a huge contingent of people who are saying fire Brady Hoke, fire Dave Brandon, just because the product on the field is bad. But what I think has happened maybe this weekend was the tipping point is that, you know, our, our so-called elite opinion has also tilted that way. You know, the, the Michigan Daily, the newspaper is now calling for his firing. The newspapers are saying he's on the way out. And so, you know, I think that, that Michigan and other, and other big programs, I think they can survive the, the fans booing and, and kind of the, and the message board hardcore people being angry and, and swearing and misspelling things. I don't think that they can survive this level when every, every one of the blogs and every one of the newspapers and, and it's on national news, you know, and I, I think that's what really pushed it over. So maybe it's not necessarily the revolution that is ultimately going to lead to hoax downfall, but it's certainly, you know, the fan discontent created an environment in which, in which that's possible. Well, I wonder if the healthy thing here isn't that, you know, we, we can sort of mock the parochial nature of Big Ten football, but you could also say that Big Ten football is kind of more pure in this landscape of over-broadcast, oh, over-commercialized. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the notion that, you know, we liked the idea of 100,000 fans, no music in the stands, and people just playing the sports. Obviously, that is a sort of naive patina over the reality of recruiting and corruption and big money in all of these programs. But if the opposition is to something that has made Big Ten football or Michigan football feel like the NFL or feel like something that's so obviously over-commercialized and run by a pizza guy, then that's not a bad thing to rebel against. 
Oh, sure. I mean, I think that there's a certain way that, that football fans, college football fans, can be reactionary in a, in a way that's annoying. And we talked about it earlier, which is to say you have to have two tight ends on every play, you know. And there's a way in which it can be, it can be nice and I think can be good, which is, it, which is saying we don't have to have an ad on the bo- in the middle of the box score on the school's website, which is what Michigan does now. Uh, we don't have to play wedding DJ music throughout the entire game. You know, that kind of reactionary sentiment is, is one that I can get behind. And, and yeah, I agree that that maybe certain uh, Big Ten schools, that that is a, is a place where that kind of fan traditionalism lives. Or maybe with the Michigan fans, they're not ready for this. <laughs> bump, 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 but uh, no, 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 no. Sorry. Okay. All right, Ben. Well, Michigan's playing at Rutgers. Do Rutger. we get in there? Come on. <laughs> All right, Ben. Michigan's playing at Rutgers Traditional this Big week. Ten rival. Traditional Big Ten rival. Uh, Brady Hook is, has not been fired as of uh, Monday around noon. We'll keep the uh, countdown clock running. Uh, good luck surviving the season, but you'll probably survive longer than Brady Hoke. Thanks for, <laughs> Thank you. thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. All right. It is now time for After Balls. And we didn't mention the phrase Michigan man, I don't think, which is something that gets talked about vis-a-vis coaches. Brady Hoke, Michigan man, was there under Lloyd Carr. They brought him back to bring his traditional Michigan values. Stefan, you just Googled Michigan man. I did. The first thing that popped up was 625-pound Michigan man can enter plea via internet. So there's that, but I don't think that's a derivation. But MGo blog does have a little bit of historical perspective. It writes, Fielding H. Yost and Bo Schembechler seem to be the two most cited origins of Michigan man. Many believe the first reference to a Michigan man was at a Michigan basketball press conference when Schembechler fired then-coach Bill Frieder in 1989. Frieder had taken a job starting the following season with Arizona State and intended to coach Michigan for the duration of the NCAA tournament. Bo's response, quote, a Michigan man will coach Michigan, not an Arizona State man. Way to go, Bo. Mike Pesca, what is your Michigan man? Early in the season, actually, in uh, spring training, Reds reliever Aroldis Chapman took a line drive to the face. He was patched up with a titanium plate. According to his surgeon, the titanium, a strong yet flexible and non-corrosive metal, thank God, because it was in his face, it was a framework of struts and screws that stayed in his face. I've been trying to find out if Aroldis Chapman's face sets off airport metal detectors. I cannot. Maybe titanium doesn't work that way. So Aroldis Chapman, despite having a titanium plate in his face, had... I don't know if it's one of the greatest, but one of the most impressive seasons ever for a closer, just based on fastness. So they have pitch FX data. They haven't had this for years. We don't know what other what other Guillermo Hernandez's stats would have been. He averages over a hundred miles an hour on the on his fastballs, and he he pitches. He used to pitch almost nothing but fastballs. Now he pitches mostly fastballs. Something like two thirds of his pitches are fastballs. But according to that pitch FX thing of the two thousand one hundred some odd fastballs pitched overall in the major leagues, nine hundred something were pitched by Aroldis Chapman. If there's a fastball. You have almost a 50-50 shot of guessing who pitched it if you said Aroldis Chapman. Chapman faced a little over 200 batters. He struck out 106 batters. A couple years ago, Craig Kimbrell was the first guy ever to strike out more than half the batters. He faced Aroldis Chapman's strikeout rate was even higher than Kimbrell's, striking out 52% of the batters he faced. Ridiculous. You want to do the strikeouts per nine? (laughs) Of course, he couldn't possibly do this. But he had a strikeout per nine inning rate of 17.7. So if we could replicate what he does over the course of a game, Aroldis Chapman would be striking out 
18 batters a game. That's a lot of batters. I don't know how this plays into things, but the Reds weren't very good this year, and they didn't really need a closer that often. So you could argue that if he was brought out more, maybe maybe with use, some of those numbers would have declined. But actually, it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems that uh, he got stronger as the year went on. He has thrown almost 400 pitches that were measured at 100 miles an hour or more. I know it's fascist to think about, you know, this, these fast pitches and to marvel at velocity. But sometimes, like with Usain Bolt, it's just simple. Look how fast that thing goes. And Aroldis Chapman makes it fast and impressive, more impressive than uh, anyone else in baseball. All right, Stefan, what is your Michigan man? You didn't need to watch the Ryder Cup to understand what was happening. All you needed to do was follow Dan Jenkins on Twitter. And truth be told, you didn't even need to do that over the weekend. Seven weeks ago, on August 7th, the 84-year-old golf and football writing deity was previewing the biennial U.S.-European fist pump. And here is what he wrote. I'll save you some time. Europe, 16.5. USA, 11.5. And that was the result to the half point. He knows. He knows everything. Dan's daughter, Sally, the Washington Post columnist, wrote when I pointed this out to her last night. Jenkins is, of course, a unanimous first ballot guy in the never-to-be-constructed sports writer Hall of Fame, Sports Illustrated staffer who helped define 20th century magazine writing, author of Semi-Tough and 20-some-odd other books including this year's His Own Self, a semi-memoir. Until his doctor made him skip this year's British Open, he had covered 179 majors in a row for either SI or Golf Digest, where he has spent his non-retirement. He's covered 223 majors in all. If you want to know more about Jenkins' unflowery, hilarious, unapologetic, anti-romantic, sacred cow-tipping prose, read Brian Curtis's Grantland profile from March, which quotes another writer calling Jenkins our Mark Twain, our Ring Lardner. If you want to know more about Dan and Sally, read her little play-by-play of their taking in this year's British Open from his over-air-conditioned living room in Fort Worth. Like Roger Angel, who's got almost a decade on him, Jenkins plans to write until time takes away his keyboard. But while Angel is writing Talk of the Town, Pentimentos, and the occasional life-summing-up longer essay for The New Yorker, he published his last book during his 86th year, Jenkins has turned for sentence-constructing pleasure to Twitter. Five years ago, his Golf Digest editors decided that a month-later magazine story about a major didn't serve its readers very well and suggested that Jenkins live-tweet the majors. 3,180 18 tweets later, Jenkins belongs in this Hall of Fame, too. The ancient Twitterer, Mike Lupica calls him. No all-caps irony, no links to Vine, no hot takes, just compressed, distilled, unvarnished, unambiguous observations. Here are a few from this weekend. The Americans were 0-6-2 in alternate shot. Time for alternate players. This will be quite the celebration for the Europeans when they all get back home to Florida. Bubba Watson can't wait to go to Paris for the Ryder Cup in 2018. Misty memories of seeing that big tower and the museum starting with L. So Phil texted Watson yesterday begging to play, which means Tiger texted Watson begging him to keep Phil on the bench. There's enough material in Phil's jacket for him to be declared a wind farm. Jenkins' tweets are some indeterminate mix of sick burns, bullseye zingers, and dead-eye observations. Tiger Woods is his favorite foil. Tiger's back looked good on that penalty drop, he wrote recently. Obviously, he's not a big Phil fan either, or it might seem sometimes much of a fan at all. When a follower wrote to him, you are the Jack Nicholas of grumpy, Jenkins replied, consistent record over multiple decades. 
Sure, there's the occasional older guy PC misstep, like when he wrote in 2010 of the Korean golfer Y.E. Yang. Y.E. Yang is only three shots off the lead. I think we got takeout from him last night. Golf Digest apologized. Jenkins said he had just eaten at P.F. Chang's and thought it was funny, and he hates political correctness, and he didn't care anyway. Philip Bondi in the New York Daily News tisked, this is why nobody should tweet. But Jenkins should never stop. One reason, because Sally says he loves it and it keeps him writing. Twitter is, to him, a well-written and highly focused sentence, she told me. He always told me, find the defining moment and kick it till it's dead. Twitter lets him do that like 40 times a day. Sally says her father is baffled by the internet and pretty much every other modernish gadget, too. Calls them all electricity, doesn't even trust a cash machine, but he believes in the power and the carpentry of sentences, she said. His tweets are hammering nails into boards. Keep hammering down at Dan Jenkins, GD. That doesn't stand for goddammit. Golf Digest. Josh, what's your Michigan man? Stefan, you have done an afterball on the site Lucky's Amazing Sports Lists which is exactly what it sounds like. I did. It's a collection of amazing sports lists. And they are amazing. Uh, I ran across it over the weekend because I was reading about an eight-man football game in Kansas in which Otis Bison beat Kinsley 104-70. to The website catchitkansas.com said it was the highest-scoring game in Kansas high school history and that Otis Bison got 10 scores from speedy sophomore wide receiver Brad Lightfoot. Appropriate name. So I went to Lucky Sports List to find other high-scoring football games. It used to be actually pretty common, or at least a lot more common, for teams to score in excess of 100 points. We all remember the Yale 113 nothing win over Dartmouth in uh, 1884, October 25th. But four days later, Princeton beat Lafayette 140 to nothing. Then you had Stevens Institute of Technology 162 to nothing over College of the City of New York, Harvard over Exeter, Yale over Wesleyan. Stefan is like, Probably. I, I mentioned one in my afterball last week, 222 to nothing, Cumberland. You know, we're getting there. Oh, we're getting there. I'm sorry. All right. Stefan, lack of patience. Yep. So uh, Georgia Tech beat Cumberland 222 to nothing. So um, these games are a lot less common recently, but they're more common in being less common than I thought they would be. So Texas high school six-man football is still uh, the scene for many a 100-point game. You had in 2013 Lake Arthur New Mexico beating EP Jesus Chapel 101 to 12. Have some have some mercy on Jesus, please. Uh, Dallas Lake Hill 109 to 93 over Campbell High. Um, and then there's also women's football in July 4th, uh, 2013, a day we'll all remember. Team USA beat Team Germany 107 to 7 in a women's world championship semifinal. And then in the Women's Football Alliance on May 10th of this year. The San Diego Surge beat the Arizona Assassins 101 to nothing. Or maybe it was 99 to nothing. There's some dispute about that. Um, but the highest scoring game I could find is one in which the loser had zero points. And that was Haven High over Sylvia High in Kansas, November 16th, 1927. Final score 256 to nothing. Suck it, Georgia Tech. Suck it, Cumberland. Uh, there's a Kansas City Star piece in 1992 which the last surviving member or one of the surviving members, they've all since passed away, of Haven High was interviewed named Lewis Koch. There were 38 touchdowns scored in that game, all by Haven High. Only 28 extra points, though. Fail. Failed on 10. Uh, They scored every time they had the ball. One interesting uh, note 
was that apparently, I don't know if this is still the rule, but it's a rule that would not be deployed unless you have no sense, is that five times after Haven scored, the opposing team, Sylvia, elected to kick the ball right back to Haven instead of receiving the kickoff, I guess because they were afraid of the ball. They just thought their defense would have a better chance because, you know, it's not like they're going to give up 256 points. So five times they exercised the option to kick the ball immediately back. Elvin McCoy scored 90 points uh, for Haven. He was their leading point scorer. But there are a couple of myths that this story corrected. Number one, Sylvia did not play in work boots. A lot of people talking about how Sylvia was playing in work boots. I've heard that, yeah. Not correct. There's a lot of back and forth between Haven and Sylvia. Sylvia apparently believed there was a junior varsity game, but Haven actually sent the varsity. And so, you know, otherwise it would have been a much more competitive game. Um, what, what are some of the other myths? Oh, I thought the work boots thing was more of a, an idiom, you know, that they strapped on the work boots every day. That's not, that wasn't what was going on. I think it was actually just an idiom, but some oh, people, okay. some people suspected that they were only playing in work boots. If they had regular shoes on, it would have been like 248 to nothing. I heard that they were wearing flip-flops. That's another common And it's not given. true that they were literally skating on thin ice. There is still a question, I'm reading from the KC Star Story, about why the Sylvia coach chose to kick off instead of receive after Haven touchdowns. Maybe he was a little confused. One theory was that his offense was giving the ball up so often on turnovers, he thought his team would be better off on defense. Um, The story also interviews a guy um, from the Sylvia team who has a 120-pound halfback. He says, I was about as big as anybody on our team. If we'd had anybody bigger, I wouldn't have been playing. So this is like still the biggest thing to ever happen in Haven. It's about a town of 1,200 people. And the most recent article that I could find about it was in 2012. They had to build a higher capacity water tower because the town had grown a bit in recent years. And so they were going to put, you know, Haven on the water tower and put the fact that it was the highest scoring game in football history. But there was some debate about whether they would put the score on there, about whether that would be in poor form. And (laughs) so... We're so proud of it. We can't actually document it. I want somebody to let me know, to go to the Haven Water Tower, take a photo, tweet it. Stefan's pointing at his computer. Google Maps. Google Maps. Yeah, let us know what it says on the Haven Water Tower. We'd like to know. I think there's a there's a screen. Also, let us this. know. Let us what. It, let us know what it says on the Sylvia Water Tower. This could be the Hoosiers of the 2010s. I would like to note that the water inside that water tower is actually not H2O, but H256O. <laughs> that would kill us all. I don't know what would H256O. That would, sounds like it would be highly explosive. I should have paid more attention in chemistry. We'd love your feedback. It's eventuality. <laughs> We'd love your feedback. When we talked about it today, you can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating when you're there. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook. Facebook.com slash hangupandlisten is the URL. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Volo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelmo Beatty. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.